The book of Revelation can be an incredibly confusing and even frightening read, but it wasn't meant to be either. In fact, behind the violent and alarming imagery of Revelation lies a world of beauty as we see the self-sacrificial love of Christ forever triumph over the darkness we encounter all too often in our world. Join us as we take a deeper look at what the disciple John wrote and why. Dispel common misconceptions of what it all means and celebrate the glorious future it promises in our series, Rescuing Revelation. I love these Q&A times. Uh, it, to me, it's, it's, on the one hand, just fun. It's fun just kind of you know, responding to questions that are there. I think it's one of the best ways to learn is to you know, just uh, have people ask the questions and pull it out of you. Um, I appreciate an environment like Woodland Hills where we really believe that we're called, like Jesus said, worship the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your mind, all your body, all your soul. And so our whole being, including our mind, is to be given over to worshiping God. And the mind is meant to think and to reason and to process things and to discern and to seek and discover and to question. And so I think it's an act of God when we are questioning things. I know a lot of places don't teach that, but it is. Um, we can't just assume that we believe all the truth. No, we've got to question things and explore things. And so uh, this is one of the things we do here. Every once in a while, we have a Q&A time. Uh, we're okay with disagreements here. Uh, this isn't uh, a place where everyone's got to have groupthink. I'm always paranoid of groupthink, uh, frankly. Uh, there should be diversity of thoughts and diversity of perspectives. As long as all everyone agrees that in the end, I'm right. And I'm fine with it. So that's <laughs> just kind of the parameters of this. But uh, um, on this particular topic, you know, this is... Well, I'll tell you frankly that I, I'm a lot more confident of what I don't believe than what I do believe. <laughs> so questions about what I believe in particular, I'll tell you what I don't believe, but I, I am really pretty foggy on, on, on the details of what I do believe. But I hope you're okay with that. Uh, if not, burn me as a heretic. Burn him too, because he's pretty foggy too. So. <laughs> I think it's a, of topics like these, it's good to remind ourselves. As we enter in, into discussion for the next 45 minutes on a topic that um, has, for the last 2,000 years, caused a lot of dissension and controversy and debate. Say a lot more heat than light uh, in, in this whole thing. Um, it's good to remind ourselves where we find our, our center, where we find our okayness, right? And put up on the screen here, we've, we've talked about this numerous times. Greg's reminded us frequently that when it comes to beliefs, what we believe in the Christian faith, that as long as we keep Jesus at the center... And that everything after that comes out of the scripture that Jesus pointed to. But that, to remember that there's concentric circles in terms of the importance of various beliefs. For so many people, they sort of, sounds like they have a box of beliefs in their head. And if you disagree with any one of their beliefs, there's like everything's at stake now. Um, it's pretty clear in scripture that there's some core sort of pillar uh, elements to things. What C.S. Lewis called mere Christianity. The basics, what we call dogma. But after you get out of that sort of centric, uh, center sort of place, things start to become more debated, more diverse. Denominations start disagreeing, certainly in the doctrinal area. Um, important stuff, but Christians disagree on that stuff. When you get to opinions, you're at the very outer layer, and a lot of the disagreements of the things we're talking about this morning, end time stuff, tend to fall in that opinion layer thing. And I mean, that's the point at which you might end up disagreeing with you know, your best friend or your, your senior pastor. I mean, uh, Greg and I disagree on some things, uh, certainly at the opinion level. And I will go to my death 
uh, defending his right to be wrong on all that stuff. <laughs> so um, let's, let's do this with Jesus at the center and listen and learn together. All right. All right. Great. Your first question is, I appreciate your clarity on the use of hyperbolic speech in scripture and how it was common in the first century. But what about John 3.16, for God so loved the world? I need to be reassured that this is not hyperbolic. Good question. Very good question. Uh, it, yeah, it's true that, that um, uh, Semitic people uh, use hyperbole a lot. Still do. Uh, if you go over to Mediterranean world, uh, you know, make an offer on some, something someone's selling, and they might go, that's the most absurd offer ever seen in the history of humankind. And it just means, no way, you've got to do better than that. Um, it, it, so you bargain with them. But it, it's very hyperbolic. But it's important to be able to distinguish what is and is not hyperbolic. Um, and, and to do that, I, I would think ask two questions at least. One is, is what the person's saying, is it, uh, is it literally impossible? If, it's, if, it's, uh, if you take it literally, is, is it even a possibility? And or, number two, do you have other reasons for thinking that it's not meant to be taken literal? Or that it is meant to be taken literal? And look at other considerations. Um, and so, uh, in the case of God so loved the world, there's no reason to think that that is all, all hyperbolic. Because you have throughout the Bible, and especially most intensely in the New Testament, it says God is love. Over and over again, we, we, we see that, that played out. And love is, is, is demonstrated through the cross. And, and so there's no reason to think there that, uh, that the author is stating, in, you know, like God only part, loves part of the world, or he loves a lot of people, but you're going to say he loves everybody. Uh, no, we've got every reason in the world to believe that God created every person out of his love for the purpose of participating in his love. And that Jesus died on the cross to, to, you know, for the sins of the whole world, it says. That's not hyperbolic. He's saying, no, this is an all-inclusive God, an all-inclusive love. And so that's, that's, uh, I have, we have every reason to think that that's literal. Amen. Amen. <laughs> All right, your next question. How did the concept of a pre, post, or mid time frame get associated with the tribulation? Can you repeat the question? Yeah, um, the question is, how did the concept of a pre, post, or mid time frame get associated with the tribulation? So what's the history behind pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib? Sure, okay. You know the history? Yeah, well, um, so... Uh, when you come to the question of, of um, pre, 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 mid, or post-tribulation, the question, of course, is usually referring to the question of the rapture, this idea of all the Christians being caught up into the air. Um, and the question being posed is, does that happen before this seven-year period of tribulation? Does it happen after, or does it happen somewhere in the mid, uh, three-and-a-half-year period, sometimes called a pre-wrath view? Um, and you have different Christians who, of course, would, would hold all three of those views. Um, historically, for the first 1,700 years of church history, so for most of church history, the ideas of a pre- or mid-trib rapture weren't even on the table yet because that, that idea didn't really come into play until, I think, 1820s, late 18. The idea of a rapture. The yeah. rapture it's idea. It's a new concept. Yeah. So until the 1820s with... John Nelson Darby and uh, Edward Irving and some people in, in that century, for the first 1,700 years, at least as far as we can tell from all the Christian writings we have, um, Christians assumed that they would be going through the difficulties, just like the first century church went through the difficulties of being martyred and thrown to lions and all the things that happened to them, that, that God takes you through that and preserves you in the midst of that. 
not ejecting you out of it. But again, since the last 150 years, this idea of the rapture has come into play with some uh, circles of Christians, and now the question is, well, when then does that happen? Do we escape all of the tribulation? Do we escape only part of it, or do we go through it? So it's a little bit of the history. In In fact, uh, when America was founded, uh, some folks don't know this, but the Puritans... And a great, good percentage of, the, of Christians throughout history thought that the next thing to happen would be the millennium. And some took that literally for a thousand years, some took that figuratively, but they thought the millennium would be the next thing. There might be some tribulation before that, but they expected to usher in the millennium. And uh, America, at least from the Puritan perspective, not from the secular folks' perspective, but from the Puritans, they thought this was going to bring in uh, the, uh, uh, that America would be like this, the New Jerusalem in the uh, millennial period. Uh, I, I remember reading from Jonathan Edwards that they had invented this new compass. And he, he goes on and on about how this new compass is going to help bring all these people to America. And, and, and this will be then, the, the, this is where the, the millennium will be, will be carried out. That's why they put so many uh, major cities have new before them. New York was going to be like the new York. And New Hampshire is the new Hampshire. And uh, they're all cities that were in England. They thought England, they're way behind. Uh, America is where it's all going to happen. It's such a different eschatology than, than most folks today have. Perfect. Your next question. Can you please explain the description of Jesus in the first chapter of Revelation? Why is it that he stands among seven golden lampstands, is dressed in a robe with a golden sash, has hair that's white like wool, has eyes like a blazing fire, has feet like bronze glowing in a furnace, has a voice that has the sound of rushing waters, has a sword coming out of his mouth, and has a face that is shining brilliant as the sun? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I'll say two things. One is, um, when you're dealing with images in the book of Revelation, the main point is the overall picture, uh, with the overall impression it makes. And remember, uh, apocalyptic literature is about shock and awe. And so the images are, are to shock you, to overwhelm you, to, to you know, just put you in awe. And so the main point of this is that this is a really majestic, brilliant, bright and somewhat um, ominous Jesus here. Uh, now, many times, the particular details have a symbolic meaning as well. And in this case, that's true because John goes on to tell us what some of these symbols were. He tells us that the lampstand, there's, there's, it was one lampstand, but it had seven branches on it, seven candles on it, and that represented the church. Seven meaning complete, so this is the complete church. It's one church, and yet it has many different expressions. And Jesus is, is holding on to it um, and showing that the church is preserved by him. And then the, the cloth he's wearing, this robe, that was a, the robe of a, a judge. It has a sash around it. It goes down to the ground. Uh, his, his hair is, is white as wool. Uh, that is found in the book of Daniel. The Son of Man has this uh, shining white hair. It was a sign of wisdom. In Proverbs, it tells us that those who are gray, you know, have, they wear their wisdom. And so this is a, the, a wise judge. And his eyes are on fire whatever that looks like, but, but it, it's, I think, saying that he has piercing eyesight. He sees through, through all the facades that are out there, and his feet are, are bronze in a service, in, 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 that, that, like bronze, shining like bronze in, in a furnace. And that also comes out of the book of Daniel, and uh, that was, uh, uh, in Daniel, it, it, it represents this, this judgment, he is, and he's wearing it on his feet, his feet, so he's like marching towards this, this very ominous judgment. He's come to bring judgment on, on the world. Um, and was there any other part of that that I'm missing? I think the sword out of his mouth. Oh, sword out of his mouth. You find that a number of times in Revelation. And that's the way he fights, and we saw this throughout the whole series, is by speaking truth, speaking the word of God. as sharper than any two-edged sword. So he, he cuts between deception and truth. 
and slays all deception and all lies and everything that oppresses human beings. He doesn't literally slay people. Uh, you know, you wouldn't do that with a sword out of your house, coming out of your mouth. Uh, he, he, he frees people by slaying lies. There you go. All right, next question. Um, even though we don't know when the end will come, when the end time does come, what will happen to those who are not Christians but who still believe in God? I'm taking the last two. Give me a break. Softball question. All right. Um, so the question of, of the final judgment is uh, it's, just, it's an ominous and serious question that... Uh, Jesus, from the Gospels through to really the Revelation, um, there's this idea that things will end and all will be given an account of and things will be wrapped up. What seems pretty clear, however, is that that's a decision, that's a prerogative that God alone holds and that Jesus comes as the judge. Jesus is the only one who's qualified to make those final judgments. Because his eyes are like fire. He sees truth. We don't. Yeah. And uh, so, so I think two things to think about here from our perspective. One is, we're not the judge he is. Jesus constantly reminding us not to judge lest you be judged, right? So that's not our job. That's Jesus' job. But secondly, in Matthew 25, I, I think this is important to remember. Mm. When Jesus talks about that final judgment in Matthew 25, what he emphasizes there, the whole last half of chapter 25 is that at the final judgment, a lot of people are going to be surprised. A lot of people who thought they were in aren't quite as in as they thought they were. And a lot of people will actually say to Jesus, I didn't even know you. He says, yes, you did. And then reframes the issue as that they reached out to other human beings and that Jesus counted that as reaching out to him. And so there's a lot of surprise on the last day. Uh, So... Don't judge. Realize Jesus can do it and is going to do it perfectly. But all of us, I think that, that, that word of Matthew 25 is everyone pay attention to us, to, us, to, our, to your own life, not being worried about others. And realize that God's judgment, his mercy, his grace is, is wide-ranging and has surprising ways of, uh, of meeting people where they're at. A lot of his parables are called reversal parables. Uh, it's because he turns an answer that everyone thought they knew on its head. And almost all of the warnings that Jesus gives are to people who think, who assume that they're insiders. And they end up saying, you know, those who thought they were insiders end up being on the outside, and those who thought they were outsiders end up being on the inside. So it, the takeaway on that is never get cocky, never think you belong to the holy club, never think that everyone who disagrees with you or doesn't believe the way you believe is going to be lost. No, rather, assume a very humble, humble attitude, and you are the worst of sinners, and your sin is a tree trunk compared to their little dust particle. Uh, it's the only way to be safe in the kingdom. <laughs> never, never get cocky. Don't think you know. Amen. Why is there so little focus on plants and trees when you focus on how the earth should be ruled? Don't plants deserve our care? That's a good question. Um, Why don't we hear more about plants and trees, um, say, compared to animals, uh, with regard to earth care and and to God's heart for creation? Um, It could have something to do with the preaching bias here at Woodland Hills. (laughs) (laughs) Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. I mean... Greg, we know I love vegetables, loves animals, and uh, actually is a vegetarian and, and has made that clear. Um, 
but I, I, I can speak. Tree hugging liberal. Yeah, I yeah. can speak from from uh, eyewitness testimony. I've seen Greg in his kitchen, and he is violent to vegetables and fruits. All right, <laughs> slicing and dicing and mincing and sautéing. It's just so. And they never complain. You know, they're, they're okay with. Them. But here's the thing. <clears throat> Even if Greg doesn't have a heart for them, God seems to have a heart for, for plant life. Uh, you look at the garden scene, right? And, and one of the most uh, rich descriptions in the garden is of, of the plant life and the trees. And you end up with these two trees at, at the center of the garden that sort of define what, what, what humans will do. The tree of life, tree of knowledge of good and evil. All through the rest of scripture, plants and trees and trees watered by rivers. Like It seems to be something God cares about and often... Uh, in fact, the, the, the fig tree ends up becoming a symbol for Israel, God's people. So frequently, God in, his, in the scriptures are, are bringing plant life into the picture. And even when you look at the very end of, of when God wraps it up in the book of Revelation, there's the tree of life again reappearing. It was in the garden. It's now in the new heavens and new earth. Uh, leaves of the trees for the healing of the nations. So once again, this theme of, of plant life is important. Um, I even find it interesting. There's, I think it's Deuteronomy 20, I believe. 22. 22? Yeah. 20. Oh, sorry, 20. Deuteronomy 20, verse 19. Okay. Um, there, there's this uh, law that, uh, where God says to Israel, <clears throat> when you're coming against a city and laying siege to it in war, don't cut down the trees that surround the city. You can eat of their fruit, but don't cut them down. Because basically saying, they're not your enemies. So God actually in the law protecting or calling his people to protect the trees of uh, enemy territory. So I think Which was a, the ancient Near Eastern context significant because, uh, you know, Assyria and Babylon, they, they held to a scorched earth policy. When you go in, you destroy everything, everything. Just raise it to the ground. And God said, you know, preserve the trees. They didn't do anything wrong. Um, you know, when I say that our first commission was to rule the earth and the animal kingdom, by earth I mean everything else other than the animals. And so you find that right in Genesis. I have dominion over, you know, the plants and the vegetation. He specifies all of it. It does say in verse 30 that he's given the vegetation for food. Uh, that's, if we didn't eat that, we would starve. But everything originally was, was vegetarian. They weren't supposed to eat each other. Before the fall, they were to just live off the, the, the fruit, the trees of, of, the, of the fruits and shrubs and all that stuff. But uh, um, I remember that, and I mentioned this last week or the week before, that to have dominion, and you find this in the book of Revelation, we're to do it in the lamb-like way. The, way, the way. the whole point of Revelation is that it's a secret about his character as revealed by how he rules and by how he wins. And he does it not by slaughtering, but by serving. He's a sacrificial lamb. And we're going to be reigning with the lamb. And so to reign over the earth and the animal kingdom does not mean that we exploit it or have dominion over it, like in, in, a, in a tyrannical way, but we, we are servant leaders. We're to take care of it. And, uh, uh, and when we do that, it blesses us back. And that's kind of God's ecosystem policy, but not to lord over it in an abusive way. What is the difference between the first and the second coming of Christ? One comes first and the other one comes second. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, the, 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 the purpose for the first coming was to inaugurate the kingdom, to plant the mustard seed. Um, and um, the, the purpose for the second coming is to really harvest it, uh, to bring it to completion. So it, it was planted with his, his uh, ministry, life, death, and resurrection. 
Um, and now when he comes back, he's going to bring closure to the whole thing. It's been in this process of being in the war that's described in the book of Revelation. It's been in that war uh, throughout history, but there will come a point where he'll come back. And, and now it's time to bring closure to everything, to manifest all that is true. And everything that's consistent with his, that kingdom, with his, his lamb-like character, I think will be purified. And everything that's not will be burned up. The only thing I'd add is uh, the idea of a two-stage coming of Messiah was not something that the Jews expected. Uh, what they envisioned, uh, near as we can tell, the Second Temple period, the uh, end of the Old Testament and on into the, the New Testament period, that the Jews were expecting a single coming of a victorious, politically powerful, militarily, uh, a guy who's going to come and really clean house, right? get rid of all of, of Israel's enemies and set up a throne. And so the last thing that, that the Jewish uh, nation expected was a Messiah who would come and actually look like they were being defeated by the very enemies they were supposed to destroy on a cross. And so what it, what it says to me, I, and I think to us as Christians, is the way that God co- comes as Messiah, the way he does warfare, is not the way that, that uh, people expect kings and rulers and military leaders to do it, but he comes and actually, in a, in a very much of a reversal of that expectation, comes and first bleeds and dies, and that that's where his victory lies. And that, that's the unique uh, dimension of, of Jesus as Messiah that uh, really blew apart the categories of, of Jews of that, of that day and time. And that's the whole point of Revelation, once again, with the scroll, is that, that it's the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, that rules... Uh, and he rules in a lamb-like way, and he, and he wins in a lamb-like way. And no one saw that coming. It's so, so, so revolutionary that most Christians to this day don't get it. Uh, we still rely on Babylon power. We think Babylon power wins. That, that we think that was just a temporary thing. Oh, Jesus had to suffer. But now that he did that, uh, we can now just kind of use the same power as Babylon and conquer and all that stuff. Uh, but the, the whole point of Revelation, and this is consistent with everything else we read in the New Testament, is that, no, he laid down an example that we're to follow. This is how, this is how we are to rule. This is how we are to win. And, and we participate in, in a sacrifice uh, uh, in the process of doing that. And we reveal God's character, which invites others into the kingdom at the same time. All right. Your next question. When I was 12, I asked my pastor if my dog, whom we had just cremated, would be in heaven. He said no, and I gave up on God, the church, and everything else for over 20 years. I'm just beginning to give it another try, but I need to know what Woodland Hills thinks will happen to the animals that we love. They go to hell, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Especially cats, they're gone. (laughs) No, let me answer that. I I have far more than you you would probably guess confronted people who, who are traumatized by pastor's giving that kind of answer. Uh, they love their pets and then wanted to know, will they ever see them again? And they got a no for an answer. Uh, and it caused them to lose their faith or to hate God or, 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 or whatever. And there's a long tradition about that where in the, in, church, in, in the church that does come out of the Bible, it comes out of uh, other traditions that the church incorporated, where they think that only humans matter to God and only humans have souls. And uh, uh, so nothing else really matters. Everything else is just a prop. And so animals were seen as just sort of being part of the world's furniture. 
uh, you know, they're kind of cute and fuzzy or they're dangerous, whatever, but, but they're just part of this world. But then they'll all be left behind and, and, and then heaven will just be people. And there is nothing in the Bible that remotely, remotely suggests that. Now, I don't know the individual fate of all animals, but I do know that if heaven would be less of heaven for your pet not being there, then you must imagine heaven with your pet being there because everything the Bible says is that it's better than we can possibly imagine. Not worse than we do imagine, but however good you imagine it, it's better than that. And then there's all these passages that talk about animals in the kingdom. Lion laying down with the lamb and the child praying with the cobra and the bear shall lead the whatever. And, uh, and so we've got every reason to think that, that there'll be plenty of animals there. Uh, re- they'll be redeemed just like we'll be redeemed and the earth will be redeemed. Um, but uh, yeah, if you love your animal, I, 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 I think my little Max is going to be in heaven. And I envision heaven. My little dog's got to be there. I'd miss him if he wasn't there. My wife would go crazy if he wasn't there. So Jesus, resurrect my dog. I, beyond that, I don't know. <laughs> I disagree. I'd say that, um, you know, Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 talks about the fact that creation, all of creation is groaning for redemption. Mm. And so frequently, um, as Greg mentioned, uh, when, you, when you talk to Christians today, a lot of times you get inside of our heads on what we imagine heaven to be. It sounds a whole lot more like what Plato said mm. about the world of the forms than what the Bible says about this new heavens and new earth where God redeems all of creation. And part of creation, of course, is from the beginning, animal life. And so it would be very strange if God is redeeming creation, all of creation, and then leaves the animals out of it. And so I'm with Greg on this. Especially because you have all these passages about God loving these animals. Yeah. You know, he, 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 he's groaning over this prospect of judging Nineveh because he says, among other things, it's got so many animals there. He loves the animal kingdom. And so God doesn't give up on stuff he loves. He redeems it. Okay, your next question. Could the verse that says the sun and the moon will be darkened be a reference to an eclipse? No. (laughs) What kind of eclipse would darken both at the same time? You couldn't have that. Uh, The reason you have an eclipse is because you you either have the earth blocking the moon or the earth blocking the sun. And it gets in the way of the light, right? So you couldn't have an eclipse where both are darkened at the same time. Uh, And the thing is, is we know from just examining other apocalyptic literature... And the Old Testament. I mean, it has, it has at least 13 times the sun, moon going dark, and the stars falling from the sky, and, and all this other kind of stuff. And as I, I shared uh, last week, yeah, it was, I think it was last week, the week before, it all gets so confusing. But uh, that it's just their way of saying end of the world as you know it. Uh, it's mentioned uh, with the destruction of Babylon, the destruction of Edom, the destruction of Assyria, uh, a judgment on Judah. It, now, no one actually saw that stuff at the time. And if you really want to check it out, go back and you can now go back and, and see where eclipses happened, and they don't correspond to those judgments. Uh, it was just an expression, a way of saying, uh, end of the world as you know it. And I know that strikes us as strange. Gosh, why would they say that if they don't really mean it? But all idioms are strange to those who don't, aren't native to the language. It's raining cats and dogs. Why, who, where do we ever get that from? Uh, it's weird, but we you know, say stuff like that. Um, and, and so this is just one of the, the, the idioms of uh, the uh, Hebraic and then Greek uh, mindset of, of the language among Jews. Okay, just play devil's advocate okay. here. Here's the devil. <laughs> We've we established so, that. If you got a lunar eclipse of the sun, the moon would block the sun. That would darken the sun. Uh, now, you talked about blood moons last week, right? I did. You read the book. Well, I, I did. I didn't read the whole book. I looked on there. Listen to the sermon. You read the title page? No, I read, I read the excerpt from it. Okay, and, uh, well, said it. so what, what, does the blood moon refer to the, the kind of darkened color of a moon That's during right. the eclipse? Uh-huh. Okay, so there, wouldn't you have 
the, the sun goes dark and the moon turns to blood, i.e., a reddish hue. Couldn't you, wouldn't that be exactly what happens potentially in a, in a no. eclipse? No, okay, you said yes three times, astronomy. and now you're saying no. No, no here you have this, the sun's shining, and that's why it creates this red aura on the moon, because the, 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 the earth is in the way, and so the light has to go through the atmosphere, and it's affected by that and creates this kind of uh, red thing. Which, by the way, is not what the Bible says when it says the moon will turn to blood. Uh, it, it doesn't say the moon will be red like blood. It says it will turn to blood. Oh, it's a but metaphor. I, I, it is. I know, but I'm just saying you can't base much doctrine on that like the, this movement is doing. What was your point? <laughs> you, can't, you can't have a, an eclipse where both the sun and the moon are simultaneously eclipsed. That's all I'm saying. Okay. We need someone from the Weather Channel here right now. <laughs> <laughs> Hold the news. Okay. If Jesus being taken up is symbolic, where did Jesus go and how did he get there? Neptune is my guess. I, I, I met a lady one time who um, argued that, uh, this is why a little, little knowledge can be dangerous. She looked up in her Greek concordance and found out that the word for heaven in, in Greek is Uranus. And so she uh, it used to be pronounced Uranus, but they changed it. So it's Uranus. And uh, so then she came to the conclusion that, that that planet, Uranus, really is heaven. And so Jesus ascended and went to that planet. I think it's much too cold there and gassy <laughs> to be heaven, but that was her conclusion. Not realizing that the, the planet was named after the Greek word, not the other way around. So, um, so yeah, Jesus goes up, you know, they say he, he ascended. But uh, we clearly don't think I, that you could take a spaceship to, to heaven. Like, did he go on for 20 billion light years and then arrive someplace? Uh, I see that is, 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 this is a literal event with a symbolic uh, meaning. He's symbolizing that he's, he's transcended this plane. And the only way they think about that in the first century is, in fact, today, even today, we talk about heaven being up there or whatever. This is the, how we think spatially. So he accommodates that by sending it up in the air. But I don't think he just then continued to travel throughout a space like Superman to a planet. Uh, he, at some point, I think, just went to the next dimension or however you want to talk about that. Is that how you read it? I, it is. It is, yeah. I mean, it, it, Paul, at one point in first, Second Corinthians, talks about the, uh, uh, a, a vision that he had, at least that's how most scholars do that, that when he talks about in the third person, that he had of the third heaven. And so that, that sort of lets us know that the ancient cosmology was of these three levels to heaven. Uh, the first heaven being what we'd call our atmosphere where birds fly around, the second level being where angels and demonic entities live, and then the third heaven being God's throne room, basically. And so I think also what someone from the ancient first century world would, would have imagined is Jesus is rising up. It's also demonstrating that Jesus is Lord over these three levels. He, he rises up for the first, through the first heaven, through the second heaven, right up to the third heaven, the very throne room of God, which he means he's Lord over all these, over everything, mm. including demonic principalities and powers. So it was a very powerful, uh, theologically true message that, that this uh, activity uh, was expressing. Mm -hmm. What does it mean for our relationships to see Jesus as a slain lamb? Is there ever an appropriate time to refrain from sacrificial living as a slain lamb would? Mm. You want to take a swing? Mm. Yeah, so the short answer, I think, would be no. Right? I don't think there's any, any situation in which you say to yourself, I, as a follower of Jesus, do not have to follow the model of Jesus' consistent lamb-like self-sacrificial behavior. Now, as soon as I say that, I want to stop, though, and say, wait a minute, though. What we mean by or what we think is self-sacrificial 
has to be measured by or guided by a healthy love relationship. And so I think for a lot of people, what they might call sacrificial or loving behavior might actually be pretty dysfunctional, uh, Mm. codependent behavior that isn't really about the good of the other person, but actually might be feeding into their own needs and dysfunctions. So in terms of healthy self-sacrifice, what what you get from Jesus, at least this is the picture I think that as I I read the the Gospels, I I see this person who's absolutely self-sacrificial, but none of it is coming out of this sort of uh, poor self-esteem or neediness or the need to be loved by others, so he's, he's placating people. He's got this beautiful, anchored sense of, of God's love for him, and that frees him now to, in every situation with human beings, ask the question, what does self-sacrificial love look like here out of healthiness, not out of dysfunction or neediness? Sometimes it looks pretty confrontational. Yeah, exactly. And he got in the face of the Pharisees big time, you know, and... and because I think realizing that these people are the farthest from the kingdom. People who think they're in the kingdom when they're absolutely antithetical to the kingdom are, the, are in the most dangerous position. And their soft approach just wouldn't work. So he uses strong words and gets in their face because he wants to wake them up, shock them to uh, repent and turn from, uh, hopefully open their eyes to what the kingdom's really all about. And it is self-sacrificial, I think, when he, when he, he tells the rich young ruler, realizing that this guy has got this stronghold on his life, he goes, okay, if you want to follow me, go sell everything, give it to the poor. And then he lets the guy walk away, and Jesus was sad. He, he just sacrificed his relationship, but sometimes that's what you've got to do. You lay down, you, you implore with the person to change. If they don't, love sometimes has to walk away. Um, and, 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 you know, let, let, that, let the consequence of that play itself out. So, when, when, you know, the Bible says, love, love your neighbor as yourself. And so you're, I, I, I tell people who are in abusive relationships, because whenever they hear the self-sacrificial talk, they, they worry that I'm saying that you should stay in a, a relationship in which you're being sacrificed. Um, and that's not at all what it's saying. Uh, if, if the if treatment you're getting is, is radically different from the worth that you actually have, you've got to love yourself and stand up to that. And get others in, in, involved in it too, and lay down you know the boundaries that are here. Here's here's what here's the kind of treatment and the kind of language and the kind of behavior that that is going to have to happen if this relationship is going to work. And there's sometimes it's not it's not healthy to let you let him this person think that treating you in abusive ways is the way is legitimate. And it's not it's not good for you to be living in a condition where your worth is being undermined all the time. So sometimes love gets big, gets strong, and sometimes it even walks away. I think one, uh, one reason this can be difficult for us in our culture to find this balance is because we are all bred in an in individualism yes. that, that just distorts this. So, for example, I think for most of us in this culture, when we think about love, we think about two options, either loving myself, take a relationship here between two people, either I love me or I love you. Um, and we think that self-sacrifice means not loving myself so that I can love you. But I would say there's a third option. It's, I don't think it's about me or about you, but rather what we're called to love is the us, the relationship. It, when, you, when, you, when we focus on not the individualism, but rather the relationship itself, we realize that both of us are called to self-sacrificially love each other in the context of relationship. And I think that, that will help balance, I think, this out. Okay. All right. You guys think you can do two more questions in this time? Sure. All right. Keep an eye okay. on the clock there. All right. Does the phrase, the coming of the Son of Man, always denote judgment, as in Mark 13? If so, why is that? It seems like some positive and life-giving things should also be associated with it. 
Um, because it does. Gone. It just does. No, the, the phrase son of man, it, it it's, uh, comes out of Daniel. And it, 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 it was associated with coming in judgment. Um, and, and so that's, that's kind of the meaning of it. You know, son of man, it's, it's God's representative coming uh, to bring judgment on the earth. Now, that is bad news for all the folks being judged. But it's good news for the ones who, are, who are, uh, have a heart towards God and very frequently in the Bible, who are being oppressed by the ones who act unjustly and being dehumanized by the, the unjust. And so it's liberation for them. So it, it is always, uh, so far as I know, a, a symbol that's associated with judgment. Um, and if you think about it, how, if, if you're going to have a new heaven, a new earth, a new people, a redeemed creation, there's got to come a time where you get rid of all the stuff that is keeping this from being the creation that God wanted and people from being the people that, that God wanted. There has to be a cleanup time. And, and a time of purification. And that will always be bad news to those who are the dross, you know, that need to be burned away from the precious metal to uh, make it all it can be. Um, and so uh, for us, it just means make sure that we're on the side and we're, we have hearts towards God and are doing his work. And, and for us, the coming should be something that's going to be liberation. It's going to be freedom from all the stuff that is wrong with creation. But for those who are hardened against him, it will be, of course, bad news. Yeah, I think it's important uh, that... That in, in Scripture, every time judgment uh, is mentioned, yes, there's, there's a, a negative dimension to it. But the point of it is always to bring God's will, God's heart, God's righteousness, his justice. And that is all good and life-giving and affirmative. So it's always uh, two sides to, to the coin uh, with whenever judgment is involved. And, and to repeat something I said several weeks ago in this series, uh, I, don't, I personally don't believe that that means God ever has to act violently. Uh, if, it seems to me that, that nonviolence is at the very center of Jesus' revelation of God and his will for us. Um, it's, it's rather uh, the, the day of truth. And you, you find this, this metaphor repeated all the time. It should be the time when everything that's hidden in secret shall be exposed. It's the time when he, God shows up. We'll see him face to face exactly as he is. Um, and so the true God shows up and our true character shows up. All masks are burned away with those fiery eyes of Jesus. Everything that's artificial, hypocritical is burned away. And so who we really are is revealed and who God really is is revealed. And that very presence is a purifying fire. It's a fire that purifies whatever is made of, Paul says, of gold or silver. Precious metals are refined by the fire, but wood, hay, or stubble is burned up by the fire. And, and, um, and so it's just the revelation of truth and evil then burns up, self-implodes, in my humble opinion. Okay. So we are about to ask our last question, but before we do, I just want to thank all of you guys for being here and for your participation. You Great guys questions. asked yeah. awesome questions. I also just want to remind you that we will be posting all these online and we're not repeating any questions. So if your question wasn't asked tonight, it might be asked um, tomorrow on Sunday. So your last question for tonight. Since I was a child, I've had anxiety about the future. This anxiety was intensified significantly when I learned about the rapture and the tribulation period. The series has helped, but I still have a lingering fear. The future seems gloomy. How do you overcome your anxiety about the future? Well, Go ahead. Um, very good question. I, I have, in the series, talked to about a dozen people who uh, were... Uh, for whom this rapture idea and it just caused uh, permanent anxiety and or depression. Um, and some of the folks were very liberated by having the kind of reframe that we offered. Um, but this person, I think, has so been damaged by that and, 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 and so has this lingering anxiety and, and depression uh, about the future. Here's what I'd say is 
is this. Um, if it was not for my confidence in who Jesus is and what he's doing in the world and that he's going to win, I would be in that shoes. I, I think I, I saw my dad before he became a, a Christian. I, I could get so cynical because there's so much to be cynical about. <laughs> you know, it, the, the, there's so much stupidity that is just ruining the world and, and the inability of humans to do anything about it. And it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very sad. If, you know, it's eventually going to just all burn up and the earth will sunk, sink into the sun and the sun will become supernova and that's what's going to happen to all the suns. And so you end up with, with this heat death where everything's, you know, in a state of total equilibrium, which is equivalent to nothingness. We started our whole series off with that. So it is very depressing. There's nothing to be all that happy about ultimately. But see, I don't believe that's the case. God's going to win. Love's going to conquer all evil. And uh, I, I just base that on, on my, my trust in, in, in him and in his character. Um, and, and so I encourage this person to uh, spend time envisioning uh, the true Jesus and have dialogues with him and let him win your trust. It's to the degree that we don't trust in his goodness, in his beauty, and in his way of running the world and winning in the end, uh, it's when we don't trust that that we, we fall into depression and anxiety and worry, and then we begin to take matters into our own hands. That's why we think it's just like killing somebody uh, to preserve our own life is because we suspect maybe this is the only life we've got. But if we can just trust him, the more we can trust him, the more we can, are empowered to live the way he's called us to live. And that is to be like the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. They're here one day and they're gone the next day and they don't give a rip. And that's what Jesus is saying. You know, why worry about the hairs on your head? You can't add one by worrying about it or add one day to your life by worrying about it. So he's saying be carefree. Trust the Father uh, who gives you all that you need. And when you die, you die. But that's not bad news for you. Uh, that's just the beginning of the good news. Uh, so, yeah, uh, spend time with him and, and let him win your trust. All right. Ready for your qu- first question? Bring it on. Bring it on. All right. Your first question is, what is the meaning of 666? That's <sighs> 666. That's right, out of the, <laughs> right out of the gate. This goes right for the... So, um, like Greg has really been emphasizing through this series, so many particular questions you might ask about the book of Revelation... Are going, the answer is going to depend on your basic and general approach to the book. Um, I remember when I was early 20s, I was kind of a young, on, on fire Christian, and um, was kind of getting my first Bible study group and a bunch of other young 20 something on fire Christians. And of course, when the question came up, what book of the 66 do we study? Everyone agreed, Revelation. And so we dove into Revelation, and I think by the end of that, I, I was pretty certain who what 666 was, dude, it totally ends up Henry Kissinger. I know. it. That, that was hard. And that's what we thought I was too. convinced of that we, 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 for, we for years. Um, but then, you know, I'm with Greg here on this. Anytime we come to a book of the Bible, we've got to ask the question, what would the original audience have thought? That's got to be our first question at least, right? And so as Greg really, you know, showed us through the series, there's a lot of things that a first century Jewish Christian audience would have thought when they hear things like, for example, um, a a dragon with, or a beast coming up with with seven heads and ten horns. In fact, the Revelation tells us, well, the seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, in, in the ancient Roman world, the seven hills of Rome it was a pretty well-known thing. So it was a representation of the city of Rome. Also, you start realizing a lot of the imagery here has to do with first century Rome, its domination system of the empire, and this sort of thing. Um, a lot of scholars agree that the, the, the name Nero Caesar can be easily you know, 
shown to, be, to line up with a 666 sort of a number, adding, because in, in uh, both the Hebrew and Greek alphabets, each letter has a numerical value. Um, when you start thinking about that, it makes sense, because Nero is really the first Caesar, the first emperor, who really persecuted Christianity in a pretty vicious way. I mean, this is the guy that Roman historians tell us uh, took Christians, put them on sticks, uh, tied them there, dipped them, poured oil on them, and lit them on fire alive for his garden parties. This guy was a bloodthirsty guy, right? And so probably when this book is being written, 90s, 100s of the first century, uh, another emperor is coming up, Domitian, who's acting very similarly to Nero in that he's calling himself Lord and God. He's uh, starting a persecution of Christians. And so it just makes sense that in their cultural context, the one who is anti-Christ is the, the emperor who is persecuting the very people of God that are the followers of Christ. Um, it seems to me uh, and, and likely. It's interesting that Domitian, uh, the, the numerical value of, of uh, Domitian means Caesar is 616. And we find in early manuscripts that some, some of the early manuscripts of Revelation yeah. don't have 666, they have 616. Uh, and I think 666 is probably the more original, but uh, that various, and it shows that they're thinking about an emperor there. But it also, as with many of the symbols in Revelation, it has a particular application. But also, it talks about a principle that applies at all times and all places. Um, six, in apocalyptic literature, well, it was sometimes used for the, the number of humanity. We were created on the sixth day. Uh, we're just below seven, which was the sign of perfection and applied to God. And, um, and so 666 can mean just the spirit of, of like humanism or of, of doing things in, in the fallen human way without consideration for what God does. And that is the way of Babylon. The, the, the city of Babylon, representing Rome, but also all the empires of, of, of the world, they run on the basis of you know, just human thinking and, and, and human you know, ingenuity. Uh, the, the mark of the beast is on the, on the, in, on the forehead and on the uh, uh, wrists, or the hands. And there's some talk about what exactly that means, but I think at least one application of it is that, that the, the empire, the fallen empire, tries to control our thoughts, and tries to control our work. And so the economy is, is, is run through it, and uh, we're all indoctrinated with it. And so we get that mark. A mark is a sign that they own you. You're, you're owned by it. So when we're, our thinking is conformed to the pattern of this world, we're owned by it. And uh, um, sold over to it. It wasn't a literal thing, but it was a figurative way of saying our thoughts and our, our work are pop of the empire. All right, your next question. If our physical bodies are going to be resurrected, is there any theological reason for avoiding cremation or organ donation? Be weird if somebody had a raptured kidney and the guy got raptured and they, they didn't get raptured. I'm thinking the rapture, if the rapture was literal, all of a sudden pff, the kidney pops out of him. I'm just, <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be bad. That'd, that'd really yeah, be bad. Yeah, be careful who, who you take organs from. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, it's really the, the cremation question is an interesting one. Um, a lot of discussion I've, I've, among Christians on the question, well, underground burial or cremation, kind of the two options today. What's interesting is on that question, at least, the Bible doesn't give any explicit teaching um, on, on this topic. So some people have said, well, maybe we, what, let's just do the kind of thing that would have been done by Jesus in his day. The interesting thing there is the thing that was done by the the Jews in the time of Jesus' day is an option we don't have today, which is above-ground burial in two different stages. Uh, in Jesus' time, for about a 200-year period there in, in, in uh, ancient Judaism, you would have um, the initial stage where you put a body in an above-ground tomb wrapped sort of in a mummy style. Then you set, let it sit there for about a year until the, the 
flesh decomposes, and then at the end of that year, the oldest son would come, usually, and, and take the bones and put them in an ossuary, uh, a limestone box, and then that would be the, the, the second stage of the burial. Um, that's not an option for us today, uh, for most of us. And so uh, the, the, the two options we talked about aren't even things that were done in Jesus' day. That's, it's, uh, mm. So where, where, do you, where do you go on this, Greg? Well, dust, Hebrew, uh, Genesis says, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Who cares about how quick it goes? <laughs> you know, it would never turn to dust. It, you know, the folks who died 5,000 years ago are already there. They're virtually cremated. Uh, I don't think it's a challenge for God to uh, resurrect our bodies, however decomposed we are. And so, uh, personally, I'd, I'd go with the cremation thing. Uh, just speed up the process, get it over with. Why, why decay in the ground for thousands of years before you get there? If it turns out to be thousands of years. But that's just my opinion. Just personal personal conscience? I think it's a matter of personal conscience. If it bothers you, don't do it. But it's less expensive if you get cremated. <laughs> Honestly, people spend thousands of dollars on these coffins to preserve the body. Why? You could use that money elsewhere. You know, they don't care anymore. You know, I would be comfortable. Oh. <laughs> okay. The worms are going to get you one way or another. Okay. Okay. Um, why? Your next question is: Why at judgment will some people go to hell if God is loving and nonviolent? Yeah, Greg. Well, yeah, Greg. <laughs> My buddy. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I tried to sprinkle this in the series on Revela- uh, Revelation and uh, several sermons before that, but as I see it, um, the basic concept of sin in the Bible is. Sin is related to punishment uh, in an organic way. It's not something imposed from without. You know, it says in, in Psalms uh, that the violence that you have done will recoil back on you. Or the pit that you've dug uh, to trap somebody else, you're going to fall into that same pit. There's a self-destructive quality to all sin because it's contrary to the nature that God created. And uh, God in his mercy protects us from those consequences. But there can come a time where if he sees that that is doing no good, he's just enabling us. He withdraws, and then we suffer the consequences of, of uh, the self-destructive consequences of the sin that we've been involved in. And so, you know, J- James says that uh, he uses the birth analogy that, you know, it starts with temptation. And once temptation is conceived, uh, sin, then we cave into it. And the end of it is death. So death is related to sin the way giving birth is related to getting pregnant. Um, it's a natural cause and effect thing. And the final judgment day, I, I just see as a time of truth. It's, it, God is, all, all things that were secret are made known. Uh, everything that was you know, hidden is brought out into the light. And, and the true God shows up and the true us shows up. And whatever is consistent with that is, is refined and enters into the kingdom. And whatever is not is like the wood and hay and straw that is, is destroyed by the fire. So it's not so much God sending people to, to hell as a matter of, of you know, stopping, uh, withdrawing his... his, his uh, 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 protecting of them from the consequences that are already hell. Hell is just a natural consequence of going down a certain kind of a road. I don't think it's a prison that's imposed from without. And that's a really important point to remember. I think C.S. Lewis put it well when he said, hell is locked from the inside. Uh, we often get this idea that, that whatever hell is, it's, you know, whoever is there wishes they could be with God in heaven. But there's no indication of that. Um, to be with God in heaven is to love God, love others, and worship God. And that's the one thing that someone who absolutely resists self-sacrificial love and turns inward to self would never want to do. Um, and so it's interesting, the word uh, for hell, Gehenna, in, in the Greek, was the name for the garbage dump outside the city of Jerusalem. It just sort of is 
what, what could have been human and refused to become fully human, just, that's, that's the yeah, only place left for it. Luther said that, that hell is being in the presence of God in an unredeemed state, which is, I think, a pretty mm-hmm. profound statement. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, there's the, the disagreement about uh, is, is hell something that you uh, suffer eternally, you consciously suffer eternally, or is it something that it, it destroys you eternally so that there's no second chance? It's eternal in consequence or eternal in duration. And I'm inclined towards the view that it's eternal in consequence, not in duration. Uh, but it is terrible either way. All right, your next question. What would you say is the practical teaching found in Revelation for the present-day church? Don't conform to the empire. Don't conform to the Babylon's way of power. Follow the lamb wherever he goes. Uh, Rely on lamb-like self-sacrificial power in all that you do. Uh, Be watchful, be ready. Uh, It's very hard for us to notice the water we swim in. Mm. The ways of the empire are all around us. It's in the air that we breathe. Uh, And the default will be to conform to it, so we have to be very intentional at not conforming so that we can put on display the unique, lovely character of the Lamb who rules the world and wins in the end uh, through its self-sacrificial love rather than through domination. That's Ooh, in a nutshell. That is nice. Dude. <laughs> Revelation, nine, Revelation 19 kind of... says um, that one of the final things John sees is the bride who's made herself ready. The bride being us, the body. And uh, he says at one point that he's, he's seeing this bride and she's, she's adorned with her wedding dress. Linen, bright and clean, he says. And he, he says he notices what the, what the linen was, was actually made of was, it says, the righteous acts of the saints is the way it's interpreted a lot. But if you put that in covenant relationship language, love language, it really means that the dress, our wedding dress, is, is our relationships. It's our, it's our agape relationships that we've knit together. And really, that's all we take with us, is, is the love that we've poured out towards God and towards each other. And that becomes what adorns us as his bride. And so... Uh, uh, and in the ancient Jewish system of marriage, that betrothal period was all important. That would be the year that the bride would get her dress ready. That's where we're at. We're the betrothed bride of Christ. And the one thing we should be paying attention to is our relationships with God, each other, ourselves, and creation, the four directions of love. Uh, because that, that, that's the gift of the, the bridal dress we give to our, our groom. Um, that's pretty practical. Okay. What happens to everyone who dies before the resurrected earth comes into being? Are they waiting somewhere? Oh, the waiting room. <laughs> What's your view of that? Well, so I'm with N.T. Wright on this one. M.T. Wright says we've got to talk about two things in terms of after-death existence. We have to talk about life after death, and then we have to talk about life after life after death. In other words, uh, there's a state of existence... After we die, uh, so if I were to die today, there'd be some state of existence. But that isn't the final state. There's, there's a state of existence between our current death and the final resurrection. But then when the final resurrection comes and the fullness of the new heavens and the new earth, that's what we should be talking about when we talk about heaven or the new heavens and the new mm-hmm. earth. Um, and so, yeah, the, this idea that uh, wherever someone goes immediately after death... Uh, that, that isn't the final resting place because remember, wherever they go, the body gets buried and either cremated or in the ground, wherever you do with it. They're not united with their body yet. There will come a day when we get our bodies back. When the body is redeemed, when the whole creation is redeemed, that is the new heavens and new earth. But I personally hold that there is uh, a conscious state of existence, uh, disembodied, uh, for those who are with. Paul says, uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so, yeah. there, are, there are folks who uh, hold to the view that 
when you die, there's nothing there. Uh, you, you don't exist until God raises you again at the end. And there are some Jews in the first century who believed that. They had the same kind of disagreements that people have today. And most of the passages of the New Testament talk that way. Paul refers to them sleeping, which is an unconscious thing. But there are several passages that I don't think can be made to fit that. 2 Corinthians 5 is probably the, the, the biggest one, where Paul talks about uh, uh, being present with the Lord after death, but yet being naked and, and wanting to be clothed. And he's talking about the resurrection of the body. So I agree that there's a, there is a, a consciousness after death, but it's not heaven. It, it's, uh, it's, it's a precursor to heaven. And uh, heaven is in the future. Okay, your next question. Where did the concept of the Antichrist come from? You know a lot about that. Uh, not as much as you. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no. Well, you, 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 uh, Paul is the first one to talk about it. Uh, and, and, and John talks about it. Um, in fact, he says that there are many Antichrists. It just means that there, uh, someone or a spirit or a, a tendency of the culture that is Antichrist. Uh, now, the idea of there being a singular Antichrist, uh, coming at the end of the age, uh, th- that, that arises out of the book of Revelation when people t- interpret it futuristically. And that's what leads to all the speculation uh, on, on uh, who the Antichrist is and all, and all that. So the, that originated from the futuristic reading of the book of Revelation. A really interesting book to read, if you ever get around to it, is it's called uh, the, the Last Days Are Here Again. I forget who the author is. Uh, but, it, but he traces the history of this kind of thinking, um, especially over the last few centuries. And you'd be amazed at all the different people that have been tagged as the Antichrist in the last 200 years. It's just been 150 years. It's been pretty, pretty interesting. Mussolini, Hitler, oh, yeah. I mean, just uh, all sorts of stuff. Napoleon. Anything to add? Anything to add? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Okay, I just wanted to make sure. Um, okay, your next question. With so many various views on end times theology, how do we lovingly interact with those with opposing views? Is it even worthwhile? Beat him up. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Nonviolent Greg here. That's good. What would you say? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'd reiterate kind of what, what I started out with is that you know, God, God, when he decided to inspire a, a book, a collection of books, really, could have done it in any form he wanted to. He, he could have, you know, thought up something like, um, you know, Karl Barth's uh, Church Dogmatics, you know, this many books on a shelf that just get into the details of so many things. What, what God inspired was largely, if you, you know, look at the Bible, it's mostly a narrative. Um, there's a, when, you, when you do narrative, story sort of form, there's a lot of room for interpretation and not surprisingly through church history, a lot of debate. It's almost like the kind of book God inspired demands that a community who comes around that book as its scriptures lovingly and humbly uh, discusses and listens and pushes and challenges. It's almost like to do this book together as a community is going to force us to grow in love, in listening, in, in, in humility. And uh, so I think it's always worth having these conversations. Um, I think it's always worth remembering before we have them to come in with power under, with with love and service, listening before speaking. Um, There's a lot to learn in that that regard. Yeah, Paul says, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul says, uh, whatever you do, do it in love. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 4. And so whatever you do. Uh, theological debates or anything, do it in love, and love always looks like Calvary, and it always is, is coming under. Um, 
And I, you know, I personally can't imagine a greater waste of time than arguing oh, whether the rapture is pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, and all those things. I, it'd be like debating uh, how you're going to die. Will you be in a car wreck? And if you are in a car wreck, will your head go through the window first? Or will you, you know, be conscious before you crash the window or lose consciousness before that? Or will you fly out the door? You know, what is the point of that? And so I, I, I personally wouldn't engage on those kind of conversations. Um, if anything, if, if there's an opportunity uh, to show how many other important things there are to consider and how many other important things there are to do and, and, and maybe to you know, suggest that worrying about these sort of details is, is kind of close to divination, but you don't want to be too confrontational because people, you can push buttons and buzzers and they can you know, get all angry and then, then no good will come of it. But in a loving way, just try to reorientate the discussion. And, um, and like Paul said, listen first so you know what they're saying and then respond in a gentle way, but a way that maybe will help them get free from some of this obsession. And a lot depends on the person and the relationship you have with the person and how important this is to them. If this is their lifeline, this is what's keeping, you know, if this is what they're really leaning on, you don't want to take it away. Um, you know, so you have to kind of know, have, have wisdom about how to treat each individual. I think it's helpful to remember, I think in Matthew 24, when Jesus has a whole discourse about things about the end and, and such. He ends that reminding people that when the end comes, it's going to be sort of like the days of Noah, he says, where people will just be eating and drinking and getting married. And In other words, it'll just sort of be like normal life. And then all of a sudden, like a thief in the night, it comes upon you. So his point is, be ready. It's less about do we know the details and more about our lives and our relationships such that whenever it is coming, we're not going That's to be embarrassed by, by what... Jesus See, finds us in doing. Because yeah. you could die tonight. Yeah, the end exactly. of your world could happen tonight. Yeah. Okay, your next question. I was taught that the two witnesses who prophesy in Revelation 11 refer to Elijah and Moses who will come back at the end. But you say that everything in Revelation is symbolic. So what does that symbolize? The best account I've heard of that, whenever you're reading the Revelation, always be thinking... Uh, is there anything that you find here that echoes something in the Old Testament? Because John is constantly drawing from the Old Testament. And um, um, there you have this whole thing about it, that every word should be established by two or three witnesses. And it's confirmed by two or three witnesses. And, and so the two or three witnesses become a way of, of saying, uh, uh, having established truth, uh, unfalsifiable truth, truth that can't be refuted. And so many scholars argue that this is John's way of referring to the church. It's the church that is the witness, and, and the community together uh, bears witness to the Lamb and the ways of the Lamb, and that the Lamb overcomes the world and all of that. And the, ch- the church gets martyred, like these two witnesses got martyred. Uh, that's a dominant theme you find throughout the book of Revelation. And that is their victory. They, they testify that the, to the truth and their confidence in the truth of the Lamb, by following his example, following the Lamb wherever he goes. So I, 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 I'm inclined to take the two witnesses to refer, be a symbol of the church. Okay. Your next question. Um, I was taught that the author of Revelation was not the Apostle John, but another significant early church leader named John. Is there any reason to question the authorship of this book? You're the expert on Revelation. <laughs> Come on, Paul. Well, you know, there, there's some scholars who, uh, who argue that, um, that it refers to this, some other John. And part of it has to do with how you interpret something that... Um, uh, uh, Papius? Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
who is it? Papias? Yes, Papias. Um, he refers to this, the two different Johns, and, um, and so there's some dispute about that. Uh, it, personally, I, I don't think it matters. I, I take the book to be inspired, whether it was the Apostle John or a different John. It's in the canon, and uh, it communicates to us some, a profound, beautiful truth. Uh, and so I, I, it doesn't matter to me, but I am inclined to think that it, it does refer to, to the Apostle John. Uh, if it was some other John, I think it would have... I mean, usually in, a, in, a, in, a, in apocalyptic literature, if they put a name on something, it is to... Uh, if it, it, it was pseudonymous, a, a false name, it, it was to give that book that authority. And it wasn't like they were trying to be deceptive. It was just saying that this is in the spirit of this you know, kind of uh, person. And so it would be odd if an author would put a John on there who had no authority. Uh, it, it makes perfect sense if it really comes from John that he would, you know, that he would have this canonized book. But why would they put a name on for a John who's a nobody? So I'm inclined to think it's the apostle. I inclined that way as well. I think that there's an argument um, about this second, early 2nd second century Christian author named Papias who talks about, uh, he says that he tried to get all the information he could get about authorship of books and things like that of the Bible. And some interpret him as saying that there were this John the Apostle, one of the 12, and then this John the Elder, two different people. Um, from what I've read, I, I think he was actually referring to just John the Apostle. So I'd, I'd mm. be inclined to agree with Greg on this one. Okay. Your next question is, what do you say to Bonhoeffer's response to the Holocaust, where some evil does need to be eradicated aggressively? Do we let evil and death reign in all circumstances through loving our enemies? Hmm. Do we let evil and death reign through loving our enemies? Loving our enemies is a good way to... No, never mind. Well, you wrote a book that related to... I think you mentioned Bonhoeffer once in a book. Go yes. Yeah. You're the expert. Oh, <laughs> boy. He, he really... <laughs> apparently, I'm the expert at everything. Just don't ask me to change a tire or fix your car. Um, I'm, I'm trapped here. I've been caught. Okay, there. Um, well, here's the thing. You know, Bonhoeffer... First of all, there is some debate about whether Bonhoeffer had anything to do... According to the, most people, Bonhoeffer, who was a pacifist, decided in, uh, towards uh, the end of the uh, Second World War that uh, he had to participate in this bomb going off uh, that would, was planning to kill Hitler. There's a recent biography that just came out that argued that as a matter, he, he, he was part of the group that planned that, but he had nothing to do with the planning of it. So there's some dispute there. But he, he let's say he did. The thing is that he repented. This wasn't done because of a just war policy or he decided to change his position. He felt that in the same way that Abraham was called to, to do a sin, kill his son, or at least you know, go down that road, uh, so also he was called to do this even though he thought it was wrong. And he repented of it. Uh, he just felt like it was something God called him to do. Um, and so you can't base that on a, a kind of a just war policy. It's also interesting to know this, that while that looks like such a good solution, let's blow apart Hitler, and it seems very practical, uh, his, Hitler's secretary uh, did an interview some years after the war in which she talks about how that bomb going off, it, what happened is the bomb was placed by the, the spy right near Hitler, but a guard sat down, one of his guards, and bumped it, and so he moved it over, and moved it over just to a place so that when the, when the bomb went off, the table actually protected Hitler. A bunch of other people got killed, but Hitler, Hitler and the secretary and a few others were, were protected by this, this table. And she says that at, at that moment, Hitler was wavering in his commitment 
to exterminate the Jews because they, they, they needed to be fighting off the Russians and uh, they're being, being stretched very thin. But that bomb going off convinced him that what he was doing was providential and that God was on his side because he was so miraculously protected. And, uh, and so he, he, he actually upped his commitment to exterminating the Jews, even though it, it, they'd been calling off resources from the, 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 the frontier where they're fighting uh, Russia and the allies and stuff like that. So it backfired. And, and the point is when you play the devil's poker, uh, sometimes you, you lose very badly. Uh, but to say that, to, to, you know, to say that, that we're called to love our enemies and swear off all violence is not to say that we're supposed to just let death and destruction reign. No, we do everything we can do just not doing that. People think that the option is either do nothing or kill. But it's because we live in this kind of you know, myth of redemptive violence that we, the first thing we go to is the gun, that we, we forget the million other options there are available uh, to put a stop to things. It's like, think about it like this. Because I'm always asking this question, what if someone breaks into your house and is going to rape your wife? Well, here's the thing. If, imagine that my son went crazy and broke into our house and was going to kill all of us. Now, I would want to put a stop to that, but my, my, my go-to wouldn't be get the gun. First of all, I don't have a gun, but it wouldn't be to, to kill him because I love him. And so I would, that would, my love for him would open up a world of, 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 of creative thinking about how I can put an end to this without killing him because I love him as much as I love my wife and my kids and all that. My, my other kids. And so we're called to love, and not just as a rule, but to genuinely love even the folks that are caught up in evil. And, and, to, and, and, and the commitment to not kill opens up all sorts of options that we otherwise wouldn't think, think of if our immediate go-to was, oh, got to kill him. Just chew on it. Think about it. Okay. Anything to add? <laughs> okay. I guess I am the expert then. <laughs> <laughs> You spoke a lot about divination during this series. Could it be assumed that divination was the original sin of the world? <laughs> in a sense, because the truth of that knowledge of good and evil, I mean, in a sense, that is trying to know what uh, we're not supposed to know. Um, and, and, yeah, the, the quest for that. And so I, I can see where the, where the person's coming from, that you know, divination is trying to, to get divine knowledge, to, to you know, see what we're not supposed to see. God wants us to operate in our domain with all of our limitations uh, and our shortcomings and just be content with this sphere and not try to you know, go where angels you know, uh, tread and, and, and to get his perspective and knowledge on, on all things. And yet we always have a quest to do that, you know, to, to you know, know the secrets and stuff like that. So in a sense, there's a connection there. Now, what it means that this tree of knowledge of good and evil wasn't just about knowledge. It was really about the right to define it for themselves. We, could, we know what good and evil is, and, and, and that puts us as the judges of the world. But there's kind of a connection there that I can see where the person's coming from. It is, it's a chronic problem. People just love to know the secret, the inside thing, the inside scoop. Yes, we're the, we the club of knowers. It's called Gnosticism yeah. in the early church. Yeah, and whether, whether you know, we want to say that it's the original sin or not, it certainly is a, a serious sin. It's one that all through Scripture God warns his people against. Um, and I think, what, I think what the heart of it is, is that when we're trying to, to use divination or any other means of sort of getting an inside scoop on the future, what it really, I think, is doing is, is showing that we're, we don't fully trust God for the future. We want something, we want God yeah. plus something. 
God plus knowledge, God plus an inside scoop, God plus a crystal ball. Exactly. And God's simply saying, just trust me. Because that's really, really all you need. Anything beyond there is to really start to move into an idolatry of something else than, than just trusting God for, for the future. It's the knowledge is power, right? And that's what's, yeah. if you know, then you have the power. Uh, man, in the ancient Greek world, they were so into divination, the Delphi Oracle, yeah. they are just all into this stuff. And the, 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 God called his people to be totally different from that. Trusting him, and he takes care of the future. That's really all we need to know about the future is God's in charge of it. All right, your next question. You preached that we would have new bodies and heaven would be here on earth Thank at the God resurrection. Thank God for that, right? Um, what do you think people are seeing when they claim to see heaven? There are dozens of books in Christian retail that tell stories yeah. of people who died and saw people in heaven. Hmm. What are your thoughts? Paul's expert on this. <laughs> Post near-death experience. I think that this ties to the earlier question about you know, what happens after death. Um, there's you know, lots of studies in the last several decades on near-death experience. And um, it's cross-cultural. It's uh, uh, even when you look at the different cultures and what people report, a lot of it is varied, but some things are very similar. Um, to me, it, it fits with the biblical teaching that after death, there is something that, that we consciously experience, but that it isn't the final state. Because again, whatever someone's experiencing, they're not experiencing in their body, it's, it's this detachment from the body. So it's not the final state. That will come with the resurrection. Um, and there's a lot of debate about, well, how much data can you trust from these near-death experiences? There's, there's some people who, you know, die on the operating room table, let's say, and they'll be revived and come back and talk about things, seeing things that aren't at all biblical. Um, so I'm, I'm not suggesting or, or claiming that everything someone says they experience is actually true to reality or... That I'm simply saying that it does suggest there is some uh, evidence, for, empirical evidence for existence after death apart from the body. And some of the most interesting cases of this, I think, are what are called veridical or corroborative near-death experiences, where what people experience isn't a bright light in some heavenly place, but what, what they experience when they come back is they say that they they experience coming out of their body and then actually witnessing conversations or. Uh, there's one example of a woman in Seattle, I think it was, where she died on the operating table, um, came back several minutes later and said that what happened to her is when she had left her body, had floated down the uh, hospital room corridor, hospital corridor, out the window and had seen the hospital roof and had noticed a red tennis shoe out there. And then she came back into her body and shared this story and a nurse went and checked out this window and there was a red tennis shoe thrown up on the roof. So I think it's, it's really interesting data that humans can transcend their bodies in terms of existence. But it's also very funky, uh, which is why I wouldn't put any credibility on the details of right. what people say right. or what they... Because sometimes it can just be neurological poppings as the brain is, is shutting down. Uh, it can feel euphoric. I had that happen to me when I was 12. I got this big... A sledding accident, and I was passing out, and, and I was very blissful, and I was waiting for the Virgin Mary to show up because I was a Catholic boy, and, and Mary was the only one I trusted in heaven, so I was waiting for Mary to show up. <laughs> Never happened, but, but it, 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 you know, it, 
the brain can just, lacking oxygen, you can have all these kind of experiences. And, and then your own belief system, I mean, it's kind of coincidental that when the Mormon visits heaven, uh, she finds a Mormon heaven, right? And, and everyone's got their own kind of tailor-made heaven, so they can't all be right. Maybe some of it is God personalizing, you know, something to them. But it also could just be they're projecting onto an experience that the brain's having that uh, um, it feels very real to them. But in fact, there's that recent book I, I read, uh, Proof of Heaven. Any, any of you read, read that? Proof of Heaven done by that neurologist, a guy, a neurosurgeon. And uh, he went into a coma, was like brain dead for a week. And then comes up with all these. Now, it just was not a very biblical view of heaven. It was a good read, kind of interesting. Uh, but uh, it, 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 if the Bible's true, all of his stuff can't be. So I just wouldn't leverage. The, the vertical stuff that Paul talks about, that is interesting because you have evidence for it and stuff. But the details of what people see when they die and go to heaven, <laughs> I, I would just be careful. That's a lot of court marks. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but take it seriously. <laughs> all right. Well, I want to thank all of you for being here and for your excellent participation. We have time for one more question, and so we will ask that. But I also really want to encourage all of you to go on the website later this week and check out the other, um, the other sermons, because we're not repeating any questions. And also, if your question wasn't asked during this service, it might have been asked in one of the other two services. So I'd really encourage you to check those out on the website later this week. Now, for your last question for this morning... Um, it's this. I have a sister who is a zealous end timer. For example, she is stockpiling food and other necessities in her cabin to survive the tribulation period. And this is, um, this is all she'll talk about. It's destroying her marriage and her relationship with me and with her other siblings. What would you do if this was your sister? That's good. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's really interesting is uh, in the series that we just uh, went through, I've talked to three or four people who are in this very situation. Family members are just obsessed with uh, something to do with Left Behind series or the end times, and they're like, what do you do in a situation like this? And, uh, you know, it depends on, again, the relationship that you have and how much credibility you have and, and you know, all of that. But first thing I, I would encourage you to do is, is pour the love on. Just pour the love on so it keeps the lines of communication open. Whatever they believe, whatever they do, it, maybe the rest of the family rejects them, but you be the one person that, that doesn't let this get in the way. Um, I know that people who are obsessed with end time stuff can, and that's all they talk about can be difficult, uh, but um, you know, that's what the love does. You, you press through that. And then think, think, think about what, I mean, usually, like I say always, there's a need that a person has, and there's a need that's driving this. And so rather than just go at the activity itself, ask and pray about what is the need that's driving this. And, and you'll probably find it's some form of fear, uh, which maybe is related to something else, childhood issues or whatever, but being driven by fear. And if you can, um, in some ways, minister uh, just the truth about who God is and the truth of God's character and, and begin to just lovingly share that, that can begin to assuage the fear. Rather than trying to change their opinions about how the end's going to happen, if they're clinging to this for security, they're not going to let it go, however irrational it is. And so, so uh, think about ways that you can begin to really just reveal the true God who, if we just trust him, the perfect love casts out all fear. And when all fear is gone, people don't start stockpiling to avoid the tribulation or whatever it is. No, you, you trust God for this stuff. And, uh, yeah, so love on him and... Um, Go after the root of the problem rather than the surface manifestation of it.
Okay. Why is the nonviolent Jesus in Revelation a minority view? Is Greg just so smart that he found something that no one else has? <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> it's possible. Look, uh, good. <laughs> he's a great guy, but he's not that smart. It's just... <laughs> that can't That's be true. the reason. Uh, How did you find this out? It, look, you know, throughout church history, God has revealed new things. So the fact that something was new uh, would not be disqualified. It should be taken on its merits and examined. But in this case, um, it's sorry to tell you that I'm not that smart, and it's not new. Uh, th- what's interesting is that in the evangelical subculture, most people, it, it, it's a majority view in the evangelical subculture, and most assume that's always been that way. But as I uh, try to show in the series... Uh, the futuristic reading of Revelation and the belief in a literal rapture, is that is the rare view and the minority view in terms of church history. It's only about 150 years old. Uh, now, it's the one that, because it's been handed down through the, the fundamentalists in the 19th century who became the evangelicals in the 20th century, you know, I, it was the only view I was taught, and so I assumed that everyone believed that. It was really an eye-opening experience for me when I discovered that, that it wasn't until 1820s or so that, that uh, anyone ever thought this way. So um, uh, the, the non-literal reading of Revelation is actually the majority of you throughout church history. Now, with the non-violent Jesus, what, one of the things we're going to do is, and maybe I should have done this during the series, but uh, we'll post a bibliography of various commentaries that, in the scholarly community, it's not rare. In fact, it's, it's growing very fast in, in the scholarly community. Um, and so I didn't invent everything I've taught here is something I got out of some, something else. I, maybe I had one little insight or something, but I tweaked it. But uh, it's, not, it's not original with me. It's, it's very predominant out there. So we'll have a, a bibliography posted online for those who want to go deeper with it because there's some really good commentaries out there that just go much deeper than I could possibly go in, in, in the sermon series. All right. Um, I forgot to mention that um, if you want to write down a question, you can do that, and you can actually hand it to Stephanie. Stephanie, could you raise your hand? And Stand there back she here is. behind the booth. Um, so if you have a question and you uh, don't have a cell phone to text in, you can write one down and hand one to her, and she'll get it to me. And she's got paper and pencil back there, too, if yeah. you want a paper and pencil. So, so I just wanted to have that reminder. Okay, for your next question. If drinking blood is punishment for sin, is there a connection to drinking Christ's blood in communion? <laughs> See, this is, what, <clears throat> this is what I like about these things. You never know what's going to happen. You never know what's going to come. So you got to stick on, the, on, the, on your feet. Um, yeah, in the book of Revelation, I made the point that, that drinking of the blood uh, is both the sin that these certain people groups, the, the folks in Babylon, do, but it's also the punishment for their sin. And it's one of John's ways of showing that the punishment for sin is built into the sin itself. Sin is inherently self-destructive. Um, and God's mercy keeps us from self-imploding, giving us space to repent. But there comes a time where God just withdraws, and then evil self-implodes. And that's one of the themes that comes out of the book of Revelation. Now, the connection with communion. Um, no, I don't, think, I, I don't see any connection there, other than to say this. That when, when, when Jesus, in John 6, talks about, uh, he says, unless you eat, eat this flesh and drink this blood, you have no part of me. And he's just referring about, you know, totally taking him into his life, uh, taking, us taking him into our life and, and letting him get internalized to us. He's using a metaphor, but it's, in a Jewish culture, it'd be a shocking metaphor. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, and this is why John says that the, the crowds left him after that. They just walked away. And then he says to his disciples, are you also going to leave? And 
they rightfully said, where else can we go to find eternal life? Um, but it, it was very offensive, very, very in your, in your face, because that would be the most repugnant thing imaginable to a Jew. Remember, they, they would drain all the blood out of their meat before they'd eat, eat any meat. And, um, and so uh, there's that offensive quality here. But in communion, what we're doing is it's a sign of the covenant. It's not a sin at all. Uh, it, it's, we're just remembering what it cost God to get into this covenant and the self-sacrificial nature of, of our covenant partner. And then we're recommitting our life to live accordingly. Uh, and so there's no sin in that. There's no sin in it, but I, I think one could say there's a connection of judgment, right? I mean, okay. uh, the, if drinking blood signifying judgment in the Old Testament and in the Revelation. Okay, right. But what Jesus is doing is basically taking our judgment upon himself. And as we share in him, he, he, he takes good. that on. So and that's that whole cup. He says, yeah. take this cup from me. Because in the Old Testament and the book of Revelation, the cup is, it, it expresses God's wrath. And so he's saying, take this cup from me. I don't want to drink of it, but... But he says, if it's possible, but in this case, it wasn't possible. So Jesus bore our judgment. Right. Yeah. Yeah, good. See, you learn stuff when you're answering questions. <laughs> awesome. Let's see if you learn something with this question, too. Um, Don't push it. <laughs> um, you have often said we need to contextualize Revelation with other apocalyptic literature of its era. Yet you never really give examples of other apocalyptic literature. Are the other books and the other examples Christians? Um, can you cite other similar imagery from those books? And how were these books understood either by Christians or by pagan cults? All right. In my defense, you can only go so far in a sermon. I always will go, go over the, <laughs> the limit. So I, yeah. I was trusting someone to ask that question, and Paul's got an answer. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so apocalyptic literature, uh, it's, it's a genre or type of literature that was pretty well known between about 200 B.C., up through the first century AD, um, so about 300 years there. And it's, in terms of who's doing it, it's, it's not pagans that I'm aware of, uh, Jews for sure, and then later uh, early Christians. So it's a Jewish-Christian uh, type of literature. Um, some of the things that you find that are characteristic of this are, um, uh, in, in, in a typical piece of this literature, it's going to start out with a person, usually a famous person, um, who uh, is given a vision or dream by God, and in this vision or dream, an angelic visitor comes and then guides them on a tour, often of heaven, and, and begins to unfold to them in very symbolic terms, usually, so a lot of imagery, a lot of symbolism, a lot of numbers, uh, things about God and his kingdom, and the fact that, and here's why it's important to contextualize this, why this happened at this time in Israel's history is this was an, a literature of the oppressed, you could say. Israel was under the domination system of Rome, and this was a literature that was uh, coded, uh, at least for one reason, so that the Romans didn't know what the Jews were saying about them. And it was uh, a literature to encourage and give hope that God is going to win in the end, even though it looks like Rome is winning right now. Uh, in terms of some examples of this, uh, we only have, really have two in the Bible. Uh, one is the last... Well, chapters 7 to 12 of Daniel, that's apocalyptic, apocalypse literature. And then the book of Revelation. So we don't have a lot of it in, in our Bible. But there's a lot of other texts. And this question actually came in a few days ago. So it gave us a chance to put a screen, to, uh, slide together to show you uh, two examples, other examples of this literature from Jewish writings. The first is uh, First Enoch. Very famous uh, book in, in uh, uh, Second Temple Judaism. The movie Noah takes a lot of stuff from, from, book from this Enoch. book. Not so much from the Bible, but a lot from First Enoch. <laughs> so let's read through just a little bit of this. This is the opening words of First Enoch. 
In the words of the blessings of Enoch, wherein he blessed the elect and the righteous who will be living in the day of tribulation when all the wicked and the godless are to be removed. Just right there you see similarities between Revelation and this text. Idea of tribulation, that wickedness will be dealt with. Enoch, a righteous man whose eyes were opened by God, saw the vision of the Holy One, saw Yahweh God in the heavens, which the angels showed me. There's that angel showing this person these uh, signs from heaven. And from uh, this I heard everything, and from them I understood as I saw, but not for this generation, but for a remote one which is to come. So it's, again, pushing this thing into something's happening in the future. So there's one example. Uh, Fourth Ezra is another example. Uh, This text was actually written around the same time, maybe the same decade as the book of Revelation. So you see some real similarities here with, with our book of Revelation. And it came to pass the second night that I had it, saw a dream, and lo, there came up from the sea an eagle. So in Revelation, out of the sea came a, a beast, here it's an eagle, which had 12 feathered wings and three heads. Weird. And God said to the eagle, Thou hast wielded power over the world with uh, rest terror and over all the inhabited world with grievous oppression. Thou hast judged the earth, but not with faithfulness. For thou hast afflicted the meek and oppressed the peaceable. Thou hast hated the upright and loved liars. Therefore thou shalt disappear, O thou eagle, and the whole earth, freed from thy violence, shall be refreshed again. So in this particular text, it's the eagle rather than the beast that represents the domination system of Rome. And yet God is promising victory for the oppressed and deliverance, and finally God's kingdom will come. So these are some of the things that are pretty common to this this genre of text. And what's really unique about John is... He uses a lot of the same symbols. Uh, there's a lot of violence in those apocalyptic works. But as I tried to show in this series, he takes those symbols and he combines them with a symbol that means it's opposite and totally turns it on its head. So that uh, what was a violent symbol becomes a symbol of anti-violence, of self-sacrificial love. It's brilliant. It's just, it's, you think it was divinely inspired. It was so good. And, and you really only pick that up when you start to read other Jewish literature of this time. There seem to be kind of two other ways that apocalyptic people would think about how God's going to bring deliverance. One was the zealot way, which is you right now pick up swords and band together as Jews and you start to, you know, an insurrection against Rome. A second way, uh, though no less violent, was that we wait. We don't pick swords up. We wait for God to come and slay the people. Uh, And then there's Jesus' way, which was that neither... Uh, through, through our own means or God's violent means, that, that it isn't violence at all. It's about self-sacrificial love. Only that gets to human hearts, and only that changes systems. And that's a, Jesus brought a completely different way of God winning. In God shows up, but instead of killing, he gets killed. That's, yeah, uh, yeah. And that's how he wins. That's how he's raised. Okay, your next question. In Revelation, it sounds like no one who has died is in heaven or hell yet. Is this true? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the righteous are, uh, the martyrs are under the altar, and they're crying out for, for God to, to vindicate uh, them and, and its character. They're calling out for the truth of that scroll to be manifested, the scroll being the secret of how God rules the world and how he wins in the end. And he does it through the land power, self-sacrificial love. And so they're saying, how long before we see this? Um, but yeah, they're under the altar because they were sacrificed like the animals were sacrificed. You know, that, that's, so that's what symbolism is all about. It's important to remember that you're, you're dealing with symbols here. And, and I wouldn't read a metaphysics into that. Um, 
the, the, you know, the, we had this question in the last hour about uh, where are people in this kind of intermediary state. And we, what we just said there in a nutshell is um, that some people think that, that, that between now and uh, uh, when, you, when you die and heaven, uh, people are just unconscious. They, they just don't exist, and then God kind of recreates you at a resurrection. But Paul and I are both of the persuasion that, well, that's the way the New Testament usually speaks. There is some kind of intermediary uh, state of consciousness where Paul says, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5, that he, he longs that he, to be with the Lord, but he'll be there in a naked state. He says, 2 Corinthians 5, longing to be clothed, he's referring to his body. So it's, it, that's not heaven. It's some kind of a intermediate state. Heaven is always about the final state of our dwelling with God. So it's a future thing. So when we say, oh, they've died and gone to heaven, that's not really quite accurate, though. You know, I wouldn't start correcting somebody at a funeral. Uh, <laughs> but it, they're, they're with the Lord, but it's not the full heaven. And that will be complete at the, at the end of the age. I think N.T. Wright, uh, what's the book on? One with uh, hope. In hope yeah, hope, uh, uh, the world, hope of the world. What? Surprise by hope. hope. Thank there you. Go. <laughs> Wonderful book on this. And in that book, uh, he, he gives, I think, a couple of two helpful categories. He says, we need to talk about life after death, but then we also need to talk about life after life after death. Uh, that immediate life after death is this interim state, but the life after life after death is the resurrection, the new heavens and new earth. That's what we call heaven. That's eternal and uh, it's embodied. All right, your next question. Who or what is the dragon referred to in Revelation? The dragon. It's always good to, uh, in, in Revelation, when you're reading it, to ask the question, where, where might we find this in the Old Testament? Because he draws mm-hmm. almost all of his symbols come out of the Old Testament, which is true of the other Jewish apocalyptic literature as well. And the dragon, uh, you find, uh, is this Leviathan, uh, who is, was an ancient way of depicting um, forces of evil that threaten their earth. And so Yahweh, you know, has to hold Leviathan at bay. And, and you also find Leviathan in other ancient uh, Near Eastern literature as well. Uh, but it creates in the Bible. And so it was one of the ways that they pictured evil. Uh, it was a mythological expression, uh, but it points to something very real. Just like today we might have people draw a picture of Satan with, you know, horns and a pitchfork and a, and a spiked tail and hooves. Uh, well, that's not what Satan really looks like. It's just our way of symbolizing him. In the Old Testament, they did that with his dragon. And so here, the dragon clearly symbolizes Satan. And, um, and the dragon gives off his authority to Babylon, which is the kingdoms of this world. Yeah, and it's in Revelation 12, it actually tells us in, in one of the verses there who this dragon is. It says, dragon that, or the, the dragon, that serpent of old... Yes. Who is Satan, the devil? So, uh, four different images come come clashing together in that one verse: the dragon, which, as Greg said, is Leviathan; the serpent of old, which, of course, the serpent in the garden; Satan, the adversary, and then the devil. So, um, John clarifies that this dragon is this personage that we now call Satan, this this fallen angel. Um, but all, he takes a lot of Old Testament imagery of evil and pulls it all together and says that all sort of represents the same thing: the same kingdom of darkness and this. This evil prince uh, who, who sort of heads this whole, whole kingdom of darkness and pulls that all together in that one image. All right, your next question. If we believe that heaven will one day be established on earth, how do we explain theories of extraterrestrial life? Will they all come to earth to live here? <laughs> Could be crowded. <laughs> uh, well, you know... The, the Bible is a very practical book. It's, uh, it, it, it tells us 
just what God wants us to know. That's why we find very little, but little about the afterlife. We don't have details about that. We find very little about the details of the spiritual realm, uh, the ranking of angels. Uh, it, it, it just tells us kind of what our marching orders are. And um, uh, we always have an impulse to want to know more and press, you know, that. And there's a good way of doing that when we want to know things about the world or whatever. But there's things that is not given to us to know, and we've got to honor those boundaries. Uh, it could be that all the billions and billions of stars are out there just to sh- for God to show off, because he can. That's the way of inspiring awe. And we think, like, what would the purpose for it be? Well, what's the purpose of beauty? Beauty is beauty. You know, it doesn't have to have a higher purpose. But for all I know, there could be, you know, a lot of life out there. And if you're speaking from just a scientific point of view, it would seem there would be, given all the different worlds and, and what it takes to have life, whatever. But in the end, we don't know, and so I wouldn't even speculate you know, it's, it's like C.S. Lewis said this one time that it's enough for the chicken to, to trust the farmer to take care of them in their chicken coop, not, not to worry about what might be going on in other chicken coops. Well, the analogy is <laughs> we should be concerned about this planet. Who knows what's going on in other planets? You know, God will take care of them. Are they falling? Are they not? Who knows? Uh, it's enough for us to just worry about this one. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. Paul has nothing to add to that. That was perfect. Because Paul really is an alien. (laughs) (laughs) Nano, nano. (laughs) Okay. Uh, For your next question, who are the Nicolaitans mentioned in Revelation 2, and why does Jesus hate their practices? You know about them? Yes, this this group uh, gets actually mentioned twice to two of the churches in... uh, of the seven churches in Revelation, uh, this group, the Nicolaitans, uh, uh, Church of Ephesus and Pergamum, both get this mentioned about them. From what we know, and we don't know a lot, but um, a couple early church fathers mention this group. Tell us a little bit more about them. Uh, Irenaeus, Hippolytus, Epiphanius, I think, are three of the ones that talk about this group. What they say is that um, there was this... In fact, one of them says that uh, when you read in, in opening chapters of Acts... At one point when the church is growing, um, they pick seven deacons to serve the widows and such. And one of them is named Nicholas. And these people called the Nicolaitans about 70, 80 years later say that Nicholas, this first deacon, started this thing. We don't know if that's true or not. What we do know is this group is what's called Gnostic uh, Christianity. It was the earliest uh, form of of heresy, which sort of mixed Christianity in with a lot of uh, Plato's I guess you'd say. Or secret knowledge. Secret knowledge. um, Sort of a mixture of Greek philosophy and Christianity. And they were very focused on knowing things, that knowing the right thing was the way to be saved. It it comes from the Greek word gnosis. That's why they're called Gnostics. Gnosis means to know. So they always people who wanted to know. Yeah. And and some of these groups that were called Gnostic could go in one of two directions with regard to their behavior. Some were very, very strict and wouldn't even allow marriage. Others went the exact opposite direction and said that because our souls are all that's, all that's going to be saved, body doesn't matter, and apparently there's rumors they got into a lot of wild, crazy sexual stuff. These uh, early church fathers, very said, the church Nicolaitans church. were one of these groups. that they, they basically said, marry whoever you want to as many times as you want to, in fact, share wives, is the way some of this uh, turned out. So whatever seems to be going on here, it's a group that has departed from following Jesus and the ways of Jesus and is sort of taking liberties, maybe sexually in other ways, uh, in practices that just don't line up with uh, kingdom, kingdom lifestyle. They would also loop it in with, with Paul's concept of grace and really abuse it. Yeah. 
uh, where they, they, the one group that we know from Ira Dance, uh, you'd had to break each of the Ten Commandments intentionally uh, to prove that you really trust in God's grace. So it's, shall we send that grace may abound? You're like, yes, let's do it. Very convenient. Yeah, but how, how nice. But yeah, they, they, they're, they're kinky and all that stuff. So Jesus hates that. Just know that. He hates it. Don't like it at all. Not good. Okay. Um, your next question. Revelation 22 warns against removing or adding things to this account. How much creative license or interpretation is permitted before we run this risk? The threat of plagues if we do too much seems scary. Is that a real consequence of crossing a line? Mm-hmm. What do you think, Greg? Well, uh, you, you take know, a lot of literary license around here. <laughs> well, that's a real support. <laughs> we have to, you know... You have to interpret things responsibly, and, and, and so that's always about looking at the context, how the original audience understood it, and that, that's what I, I, all Bible interpreters should try to do. When you find people who uh, impose their own agendas on the text, uh, when it, it couldn't possibly be what the original audience would have understood, uh, yeah, that, that, that can be a dangerous thing. Now, whether it applies to that warning or not, the warning seems to say, talk about somebody who, and we know that some people in the early church did this, if they didn't like something in the Bible, they cut it out. Uh, a guy named Marcion did this, a uh, very charismatic preacher, and he was an anti-Semite, didn't like the Jews at all. And so he got rid of the whole Old Testament and about half of the New Testament. Anything that mentioned the Jews positively, uh, he would just cut it out. And then he started his own kind of you know, gospel going. So I, I think the warning is, is about people who would tamper with the text. We know that some did that. Uh, that's the main thing it applies to. But it also it could be a sobering reminder to be responsible in the way that you interpret the text. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you said that Daniel and Revelation were our only apocalyptic literature. What types of literature are Isaiah and Ezekiel? Don't they speak about the end times as well? Mm, good. Uh, yes, I'm glad that you asked that because it's one of the good questions. Well, to clarify something. There's a difference... Uh, in the academic world between saying something is an apocalypse, which is this type of literature, versus saying that something has an apocalyptic view. Uh, so there's a, there's, I would say the whole New Testament has an apocalyptic view of things, meaning um, there's a kingdom of God and a kingdom of darkness, and in, there's a spiritual battle that angels are true. And so everything in the New Testament has an apocalyptic worldview. But this particular type of literature uh, is apocalypse only happens in, in Revelation. Um, what was the last half of the question? Uh, uh, yeah, Isaiah and Ezekiel. Oh, Isaiah. Yes. Um, what most scholars say today about Isaiah, Ezekiel, as well as passages in uh, Zechariah, um, even Jeremiah, is that there's some things you can call proto-apocalyptic, meaning they're sort of heading towards that way. It's starting to talk in that way, but it's not what you'd call yet a full-blown apocalypse genre. So again, apocalyptic in the sense that it's got some of its elements, but not the actual type of literature yet. Well, one of the things that's meant by that is that they provide some of the expressions, the idioms, and the symbols that get picked up in yeah. apocalyptic literature. Yeah. So, and that's why I wouldn't say that they speak about the end times. Uh, they talk about the moon and the sun going dark and the stars falling from the sky and, and the moon turning to blood sometimes and all that kind of stuff. But if you read the context, they're applying it to uh, the destruction of Edom or the destruction of Babylon or the destruction of Jerusalem. You find about a dozen times when that expression is used when, when it, it wasn't literal. No one actually saw any of that. 
it was just their way of saying it's the end of the world for you as you know it. Everything's going to be changed here. Um, and then that gets picked up in apocalyptic literature, and Jesus uses it. And see, if you don't, it's always hard to understand the, the, the non-literal idioms of a different language because they're strange to outsiders. Like when we say it's raining cats and dogs, uh, uh, someone who's just learning English you know, for the first time would say, why, what does cats and dogs have to do with rain? And I don't know. <laughs> it's just the way we talk. Uh, but that was just their way of saying it's going to be, this is a game changer. The you know, world, as you know, is coming to an end. Uh, and that's how Jesus uses it, and that's why I don't think we should be uh, taking that literal as uh, applying uh, just to the end of the world. I think in Jacaranda, that's what Jesus suggested last week. He's referring to the destruction of uh, the temple in, in Jerusalem, which was the end of the Jewish world as they knew it. It's the end of the world. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you want to you say there's some. I feel fine. Just, I'm sorry. Later. I just I felt inspired. Uh, some passes, wouldn't you say, in Isaiah? Um, the lion will lay down with the lamb. There's sure. something there's about, the, about the, the way the new heavens and new earth will be all reconciled. Yes, yeah, yeah. So there's something future there. Well, yeah, it, but, but that, that's not the, the apocalyptic part. Like, he gives us this vision in Isaiah 11 of this, you know, the, the, what's called the millennium uh, or the, the final state of peace on the earth. And, yeah, that, that's future. There are things that actually apply to that. But when you have the destruction okay. uh, metaphors, those are always applied to a particular judgment that was at the time that they were writing. Same thing with Ezekiel. Uses the moon turning dark and uh, sun turning dark for the destruction of Tyre, uh, the city of Tyre. And so, could be used a number of times. Okay, your next question. I've heard that Revelation is circular and that this whole story of creation, fall, and resurrection will happen again and again. Is there any truth to this or is there just one final show? Hmm. There is a circle in Revelation. I mean, cycles. The, the yeah. Cy- yeah. And so it, it's not a chronological work. Uh, it cycles around. It's talking about the same battle, the same judgment. You know, and it uses different metaphors to get at it, and each time goes a little deeper with it. So you have the three major cycles of the, the seals, the bowls, and the trumpets. Uh, but I don't see anything there that suggests that this is going to go around and around. That the creation. And the end is going to, like, you know, deja vu all over, like eternal groundhog day or something. Uh, I, I don't see that in the Revelation or anywhere else. Uh, the, the Jews and the Christians had a very linear view of, of, of time, unlike the Greeks and some others. Yeah. It, there was a beginning and there was an end. Now, if something goes on later, God can do that, create another world. But, again, we're only told about this world and uh, given our marching orders for this world. So I wouldn't speculate on that. Yeah, and I think that's an important distinction because certainly there's cyclical uh, patterns and symbols in Revelation. But um, this, for, for a number of cultures, this, there's been this idea of what, what people call the myth of, et- of the eternal return. That everything, everything, like the universe, is just sort of in this ongoing cycle of birth duration, fiery death, and then it just starts over, and it really goes nowhere in particular. Wouldn't that suck? I mean, it is all over <laughs> You shall again. live we, this we again, and again, so, and again. Groundhog's Day, oh, terrible. And in certain worldviews, that makes sense, but not in the, in the Judeo-Christian worldview. In this worldview, we're going somewhere. There's an eternal kingdom, and it will come, and when it does, evil will never reign again. And that's, that's a beautiful picture. That's the good news. Of, of, this is the prelude to the real show that's coming. Yeah. Amen. Good. Amen. Okay, there was so much content that the sermon series was unable to cover. How do we continue to study and interpret Revelation through a lamb-like lens? Read oh. the Left Behind series. <laughs> do not read the Left Behind series. Do not. 
Paul. Uh, I, I talked to a couple of you folks, uh, about a dozen, who got kind of messed up by that series. I didn't realize it. I mean, some folks had marriage problems and all sorts of stuff because scared the kajibers out of people. Uh, I, I, I think I mentioned this before. That we're going to post uh, on, online a bibliography. I've compiled, uh, been doing research over this last eight years. In fact, I, we should, we should Powell, because you probably have stuff I don't have, yeah. uh, and vice versa. So we'll put together a compiled bibliography, put it online, and we should maybe code it as to what's really, really scholarly, semi-scholarly, and what's uh, lay persons. Unfortunately, there is only one book out there that's, that's really a lay person's book on Revelation, and, and it's, it was out of print for a long time. It was written in 1967. Eller? Yeah, Eller. Yeah. Um, uh, most of it's kind of academic, which is why we need to have a, another popular book on this. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll make write, that available. You're going to write that book, uh, aren't you? I, yes. well, it's on my, <laughs> my, my list. Your to-do list. Future, yeah. yeah. If I ever get done with this present book, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> okay. Can you give an um, interpretation of the New Jerusalem in light of a Revelation reading that uses idioms and hyperboles? Say that again. It says, can you give an interpretation of the New Jerusalem in light of a Revelation reading that uses idioms and hyperboles? So I think what they're saying is like, there are idioms and hyperboles to talk about the New Jerusalem in the book of Revelation. Right. And so can you interpret what does the New Jerusalem mean oh, okay. Um, okay. in, yeah, in yeah. there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> this is where he gives us some particulars, and uh, uh, I have to do recall on this. See, in Revelation uh, 21, uh, this is where the bride comes down, but the bride is the city. And then the, from verse 9 on, he describes the city in great detail. Uh, and um, he says, the angel says, come, I want to show you the bride. And then he looks and he sees a city. And John gives the dimension of the city uh, and all those precious stones that are on the city and the various uh, doors that go into the city and all this sort of stuff. And all I'll say is that all of that has symbolic significance. Uh, you'll find the number 3 and the number 4 and 10 and 12. All of, all of it is, is, involves uh, uh, a multiplication of those numbers. And it's a way of saying three was always the symbol for perfection. Four was the four corners of the earth, which, which was comprehensive, meaning like all are involved. Ten was considered the, the perfect number because it was the highest number before you could start repeating something. Um, and so if you have three times ten, it means the multiplication of perfection. If it's included with a four, it means the multiplication that is comprehensive of everything. And in the end, John is simply saying that this, this New Jerusalem is going to be, include all of God's people who are going to be perfected and harmonized and, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, and beautiful because all those precious stones are, are things that... You can trace back in the Old Testament where they, they have the significance of being something very precious that a, a groom would give to a, a bride... And so uh, yeah, just keep that in mind as you go through it. And if that doesn't work, get a commentary like I did. It's too much to remember. All right. It looks like we have time for one more question. So before we get to oh, that, I, yeah, it's only five minutes left. Uh-huh. Um, I just want to thank all of you guys for being here and for your Great participation. Great questions, you guys. Fantastic yeah. questions. Really good really questions. Good. And a smart I, congregation. <laughs> we do have a smart congregation. And I want to encourage you guys to definitely check out the website later this week. We'll be posting all the sermons, and we're not repeating any questions. So for some people, maybe your question wasn't at, um, asked during this service, but it might have been asked during a different service. So definitely, definitely check those out. All right, your last question. 
However the end times will take place, I get very depressed when I think about all the people who don't know Christ, who will die in the end and either disappear forever or will suffer eternal torment. How can we have the joy of the Lord when we know that the future of most people whom we're called to love is so bleak? Mm -hmm. How do you have the joy of the Lord, Paul? <laughs> I'm just depressed. I'm, I'm no good. You know, you know what? This is a question. I, I really have, have wrestled with this. Um, I've gone through periods where it's, even the good news seemed like kind of minimal news. Um, one of the things that has helped me a great deal, uh, A, is just to know that, that I trust God's character, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I know God in Jesus Christ, and whatever needs to be done, when I am on that side of things, I'll see it. I'll see the rightness of it. I maybe can't imagine the rightness of it now, but I'll see the rightness of it, the justice of it, and the necessity of it. And somehow, 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 he's going to bring good out of everything and, and right every wrong, and we're not going to be living with regret. Now, that's the first thing. The second thing I'd say is this. That I think sometimes we have a stingy view of God, a God who's stingy. Um, and and uh, uh, not not overly generous with his love and his mercy. Uh, we have a very narrow view of salvation. I think, um, you know, I love the passages in the Bible where it says things like, "As all were in Adam, so all will be in Christ." Uh, and and uh, as as the sin of Adam did abound, God's grace did much more abound. And I don't take that to be a, a guarantee that everybody's going to end up in heaven because people have free will and some choose against God. But it does mean that God's got a bear hug. I think it's expressing God's perspective. He has grabbed everybody. And Paul says in Acts 17 that he's at all times, in all places, in all situations, since Adam up to the present, been working in every human heart to get them to grope for him and possibly find him, even though he's not far from any of us. Uh, for in him we live and move and have our being. Uh, God is working in every heart to bring them into the, the, the truth that he's already died for them and loved them. And forgiven them, pronounced forgiveness over him. But Jesus' prayer, I think, was answered. Um, and so it, it, people can choose against God, and there's going to be co- terrible consequences for that, because to reject the God of life is death. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I feel I've got a warrant to look at people, not with this doom and gloom, like, oh, they're going to hell for sure, but to know I trust God's working in their heart. Mm-hmm. And even if I can't see it, I know God's working in their heart. And, and we're going to bring them in. And so I can be very optimistic. You know, I, 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 and we all have all these passages... In the Bible, where whatever else is true about the end times, we're going to be surprised. Mm-hmm. Jesus gives all of these teachings about, you know, the, uh, those who are confident and cocky that they're insiders, they find themselves as outsiders. And the ones who are outsiders, they end up being the insiders. And so uh, I, I, don't, I think it's good to look at, look at the world and not judge. Don't think you know anything about who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. But you can look with optimism because mm-hmm. of the character of God is not going to let that last sheep get away unless that sheep gets irrevocably uh, hardened against that, that shepherd. As long as there's any hope, that shepherd's going to keep on trying. That's my God. Amen. Amen. All right. Praise God. All right. Well, thanks so much. I love these questions. Great questions. Uh, it's, it's, it's so it's, it's fun to have to think on your feet. And like, it's like playing chess or something. Um, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up here if we could all stand. And uh, if you have any need here this morning that could use prayer, I encourage you to come forward and get this prayer. That's what these folks are here for. And everything you, you share will be held in confidence. As we leave here, I just pray that we'll be a people who are, are, are looking for God in the present, living in the present, living passionately in the present, trusting God to take care of all things future, as we just go about being his bride and love on the world the way Jesus did. In Jesus' name. God bless you guys. Go out and love on the world. Amen.